Today's episode of 990 Talk, as is every episode so far, and probably the next bunch of them, is brought to you by Michael Knopf with Draper Kramer Mortgage Corp. Let me be clear. I am literally in the process of refinancing my home with no one else but Michael Knopf and Struli Bogopolsky, who sits opposite the table of me um, more than six feet away, is also refinancing his home with Michael Knopf. Uh, and let me be clear, it's the second time in six months that I'm doing this. You can't do it twice in six months. Yes, you can. You can, I think. Okay, this is a whole discussion for another time. Sorry. You actually can. Right, give him a call. I'm doing it six months and one day apart, but you really can. Give him a call, 847-239-7804. Oh, go for it. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, why are you like you're no, no, so, no, you can so I always read the number twice. You can read it now. Okay, I'm gonna read it a second time. 847-239-7804. Hey, mom, what's up? Really, What I really want to know is how supportive Malka is of this podcast venture. Believe it or not, you're going to be really excited about this. But uh, we are... Probably uh... not if you and I are calling me about something. Okay. <laughs> well, that went well. <laughs> I think she hung up. <laughs> you guys are so bored, seriously. <laughs> Are you going to listen to it? Well, I don't know. I, so I don't always listen to things that really relate to my life. <laughs> wow, that, that hurts. Oh, that, that's, that's great. Right in the gut. <clears throat> I mean, you guys have nothing better to do with your time. I figured it's about time you do something. Now, you're obviously very bored because you have no idea if it was going to actually be happening. You guys just have <laughs> We're calling it 990 yeah. Talk. A lot of people out there think that those who can't make profit work in nonprofit. And that may or may not be true. You know, we're just like two dudes in, in a world that most people are focused on chasing every dollar. We kind of just want to show people that there's a niche for guys like us. In the meantime, we're out to at least talk about what it means to work in nonprofit. You know, just like changing the world is more important. So. Do me and you can do you. But I'm going to do what I love, do what I love. I'm going to do me and you can do you. I've always wondered, is it, like, actually fancy to eat souffle? Wait, what? Did he say that? Yeah, one? so fancy be eating souffle. We should start, like, that should be a segment on the show. We, we should analyze, analyze a different part of the a different uh, part of the song. I think we also have to get him on the show. AJ? Yeah. Should we call him right now? No. All right. A different time. Yeah, we get him on the show. Yeah, I think it's a good, it might be good to ask the I expert. I think he's deserving. Yeah. I've, I've gotten asked the question a lot of, um, the chorus is, I'm going to do me. And you can do you, but mm-hmm. I'm going to do what I want, do what I want. Is it do what I want or do what I love? Do what I love. I'm going to do me. Yeah, 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 I'm going to yeah, do yeah. what I love, do what I love. So it's like, why is it the word but? It should be and. I'm going to do me oh, and you can do AJ you. Oh, maybe A.J. Barron's not great and in, I'm going to do what I love. Maybe not, not but I'm going to do what I love. We should, we should ask him about that. Maybe. maybe yeah, let's get him on the show and ask him about that. Okay, That's what I'm saying. Time. All right, whatever. A.J. Carly's gone. She's going back to school. Um, hopefully she'll still uh, do our stuff for us. But um, when you go to school, or when you go away, and when you move up, honestly, when you move away from your parents' house, whether you're going to school, whether you're getting married, um, there's always something special about going back to visit your parents. Um, and that's why for today's board of directors, we're going to nominate the best things about going back to your parents' house. Let's get Carly on the phone. Okay, so we're all here. Um, I guess uh, you are not ready, Ari. Am I, is that just a hypothesis? Oh, can you see me type writing it down over here? I'm just saying that maybe you're not ready. Would you like me to go first again? Do, do our listeners know that like I don't 
Prepare? Prepare the same way you do? I mean, <laughs> it's unfortunate if they would know that. I just hope... Because then they would say, wow, if I quality. would prepare even more, the episode would be even better. But would it? How do you... You don't know that. If you, I think historically or just in general in the world, if you in things in life, if you if you put your best foot practice forward... Practice doesn't make perfect. I'm not saying practice, just putting your best foot forward. Okay, that's... No, not always. Sometimes you got to wing it. Yeah, sometimes winging is better. But okay, fine. Okay. You go first. I'll go first. Okay, so... My first uh, nominee to the uh, board of directors of best things about going to your parents' house is wearing your old clothes. Um, it's a weird thing that I, I guess it's for me. I personally uh, enjoy like putting on my old basketball jerseys from high school and like my sneakers from 10th grade. <laughs> Kobe once. Wait. Kobe once. First Kobe Bryant signature shoe and just balling out in the backyard. I love doing that. And bonus, um, bonus points to like my brothers who will wear like... <laughs> <laughs> well, like kid sized basketball jerseys from like when they're actually like when they were. I was gonna kids. ask you if everything fits you. <laughs> no, but that's part of their shtick. It doesn't fit. Uh huh. And you look ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, you do. That's amazing. Yeah. You do. What's your number two? That's number one for me. Number two for me is uh, I think it's gonna have to be just uh, inside jokes. If you're by your parents' house, it's usually around some occasion and um, it means your siblings are there. So if your siblings are there with you, uh, you basically can make uh, inside jokes. And uh, and there's a lot to talk about. You talk about you talk about the past, and um, for me, that's in our family especially. That's a that's a big thing. All right, go for it. All right, number one. Okay, so for me, although this might be like a little bit cliche, obvious is the pictures. I love going back to my parents' house and looking through old pictures. I don't have old pictures at my house. Um, I've probably looked through old pictures, you know, a bunch and seen, you know, I just, there's something about it. It brings back all the nostalgia of anyways being back in your parents' house, the house you kind of grew up in. If you grew up in it, it has to be like the house my parents currently live in. Um, I only we moved there. That's kind of weird. In high school. It is weird. It's weird, right? Wait, do you? Why do you know about this? Well, no, I know that you. I, I'm saying I think it's weird. Like you, you, I, you don't live like your childhood house. I spoke. Your parents, I mean. Right. So we moved to. Chicago. And my wife's the same way, by the way. Okay, so it's, then I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something out there that's weird. We moved to Chicago when I was two, and then from like two until I guess ninth grade. I think it was 10th grade, actually. We lived in one house, um, which has since been bought by a, f a childhood friend of mine, which makes it even weirder. <laughs> That's really weird. And my parents, we moved two blocks away to a different house, like two and a half blocks away. So, uh, and then in high school, I finished that. It's so weird, in fact, that like sometimes, even now at my age, if I'm having like a dream about like something like childhood related, I w and I'm thinking about like home, I dream of the old house. Yeah, so my wife also, they moved to their house when my wife was in 12th grade, and then she like went to college and like never lived so there. So you don't go back. Exactly. So a similar thing. Um, anyways, but I, I can always go back and look at uh, look at pictures. The, the second thing is the size of things. Now, again, I was in high school, but still, like the I go back. The size of things? Yeah, like I'll go back and be like, I thought this room was bigger, you know? <laughs> you know what I say? Like, or like there's like, oh, like you go in the garage, right? And then there's your, your bike. Like my bike, this happened. Like my bicycle is in the garage, and I'm like, oh, that thing looks really small. Like I remember that thing being much bigger, and I just kind of like, if I haven't been in the house in a while, or like I'm staying there for like, like a holiday, like I'll walk around the house and be like, yeah, I thought this was bigger. That I it's just that one line is in my head a lot. Like I thought things were bigger because I was. Why don't you say it two more times? That's no, okay. okay. Carly, go ahead. Number one. Okay, my number one is. Similar to Ari's, but it's different. It is looking at old videos from growing up, but the best part about it is now taking videos 
of the like computer or the TV on your smartphone. So now you have those videos with you all the time. I'm so confused. What you're talking about. Quality. <laughs> She's talking about watching a home video like on an actual TV and then taking your phone and videotaping <laughs> the home video yeah. playing on the TV. So you have you it on your phone. You actually do that. Yes, she does. She does. Yes, I sit there for hours oh doing it. Oh my God, that's crazy. I'm, obs- I'm obsessed with home videos. I love watching them. I don't even think there's a VCR in my parents' house. How would you watch them? Do you have a VCR in your parents' oh, house? Oh, no, really? my mom converted all yeah, of them. I was gonna say, my mom did the same thing. Yes, yeah, so. our moms must be friends. My mom did the <laughs> same thing. Must <laughs> be. <laughs> um, okay, and then number two, it's kind of a, a strange one, but it's the bedding at your parents' house. Like, I would never ever buy the bedding that is currently in my childhood room. But when I go back there, it's like, oh, obviously, I'm. I have this bedding. My bed looks like this. It's such a great feeling. Okay. I like okay. that. I can relate to that. Great. <laughs> okay, so my number three. I just want to say that to the bedding thing, like, there's something, like, when you go into, like, people's parents' houses, like, they have these, a lot of houses have this, like, one or two of those, like, blankets that, like, have, feel like they've, like, survived, like, either the war. <laughs> yeah. And they're, like, super, super soft. And there's no money in the world you can pay to get one of those blankets. And somehow they're, like, cool, like, cold. I like cold. Yes. I like old cold blankets. Is that those are the best? I wonder, no, if, anyone, I hear you. I wonder if anyone listening can relate to this. My parents have a couple of those blankets. I know where they are, and I'm just like, yeah, this blanket is awesome. I you can't buy a blanket like that, like a really old weathered blanket. Sorry, no. sorry. Okay, go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. My number three is a little bit similar. Wait, I don't think she, oh, to both of yours. Yeah. It's kind of a nostalgia avenue, but it's very specific. Number three for me is yearbooks. Now, there's a nature, and that is that my wife and I, in every yearbook, our pictures are next to each other. So now, Brookler and Bogopolsky. Correct. Oh, that's cute. It's not. I'm not going on the cute thing. Did you like put a heart around? No, it? no. So this is part of the in thing. In every yearbook. So my no, no. Yes, you did. No. Can yes, I tell the story? You did. So here's the thing. So my wife does not like her pictures in the yearbook. Uh-huh. So she's hid them. So I don't know. She hasn't thrown them out? I think she paid off my younger brother to hide them somewhere in the house. I don't know where it is. So now, again, this is twofold again. Because it's not only are they hidden in my house, they're, they're hidden. also hidden in her house also. Oh, that's so, so funny. My eighth grade yearbook is gone. It's nowhere that's to be found. Sad. So, yeah, that's, I mean, it's not like really gone. I'm sure my wife has it somewhere that she would maybe ransom Maybe our listeners back to should me. reach out to Malka and like say, like, free, free Strilly's yearbooks. Yeah. <laughs> free my yearbook. Hashtag free Strilly's yearbooks. Yeah, and also if you're if any of my, of my eighth grade classmates, any of the twenty one oh, of you just are listening, oh, maybe you could uh, send it in. Careful, because someone's gonna just take pictures of Malka and send those in. Mm, don't want that. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel pretty do. comfortable because she is not listening or to this right do. now. She so, won't know about this. No. Send in a picture of if anyone listening out there is in any yearbook with Malka Wagapolsky, take a picture of her picture, send it in with the hashtag. Free Strilly's yearbooks. Yes. That's a great idea. Okay. And uh, so this is very important. And number four for me uh, is not paying for stuff. When you're by your parents' house, you got to use their credit card. Oh, yeah. Okay, for sure. Like, are you buying stuff like, oh, like, like, oh, let's go pick up pizza? Or like, you're like, mom, like, I need like a new uh, whatever, like a new, like a new piece of Well, it depends how smooth you are. No, house. I don't know if I go that far. It depends, it depends how smooth you are. So, like, let's say, like, my mother's, like, just, like, ordered a bunch of shirts for my younger brother who lives in the house. And you're standing there. I'm like, there. oh, I wish I had a lot more shirts. Yeah. And then they say, oh, why don't you go buy some shirts? Maybe. 
Maybe if you're lucky, it depends. And also, I don't feel Not bad. Every family works that way. I don't feel bad like doing this because like my mother will like tell my wife to buy stuff for herself and for the kids all the time, but never for me. So if I ever want to get something, that's the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, my number three is going to be your bedroom repurpose. Okay. Hear me out. I don't know if this is for everybody, but I feel like every like couple years I'll go to the house and like my room is serving a different purpose, my bedroom. So like the first year I went and like, I guess, I don't know, I was away for a while. I came back and I'm like, whoa, like what happened to like my, like the stuff on the bookshelves? Like, that's not my stuff. Like, why are you keeping stuff here? That's not mine. And then like, maybe later I'll come and like, I'll go into the closet. I'll be like, why are my, why is my mom keeping all her extra dresses here? That's not, that's not mine. And like slowly they just like take over your bedroom. And then the next thing you know, it's like an exercise room or something. You know what I mean? Like it's completely repurposed and your bedroom is no longer your bedroom. And it was, it was like a gradual thing over time, but it's like every time you come back, you're like, what? Like we don't store these in here. So that was number one. Um, also, by the way, the beds change. But uh, yeah, so my my bedroom it was it was bunk beds and they're gone now. So that's that's weird. Right. So like my childhood bed's gone. I guess it's not even there anymore. Right. So okay. Although the truth is, when I was older, I didn't. There was a yeah, whatever. Nothing. Okay. My last thing is is hard to put into words, but it goes something like this: like even though I'm married with children, if we go back to my parents' house, somehow I resort to being like my childhood self. I do that all day. Like I'll find myself like being very immature and I'll, I, I guess it's similar to like the sibling thing with like the inside jokes. Like I'll find myself like completely like neglecting the rest of my family and like, like not being parenting, like a, being like a kid. Right. So and I do that all like day. Something goes wrong. I do that all like, day. Oh, like I, like also like I was like in a trance, like I snap out of it. Like, Oh my gosh, my children are here. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Oh, Oh wait, what? I'm, I have children. Like what? Oh, how'd that happen? Oh wait. Uh, uh, you know? And then like, I got a parent again. Or my mom's like, Ari, what are you doing? <laughs> your kids, yeah. You know? But that's, uh, I think a lot of people can relate to that. You go back to your parents' house after a while, and somehow you always manage to resort to being your childhood self. So I'm, Definitely. I'm a little bit worse because I even like do it if like just like if I'm if I'm in my sister's house, like if my siblings are around, You're I also like regress anywhere your siblings are. Anywhere yeah. I have a way to regress to my to my childhood, it will just happen. <laughs> okay. If I'm around my friends from high school, it happens. Yeah, I, I mean, whatever. Yeah, it's same thing, same thing. All right, Carly, what's your three four? All right, here it goes. My number three is um, the certain foods and drinks that you're you have at your parents' house. That again, like you would never ever eat this on your normal day, but because you're with your parents and in your, their house, all of a sudden I'm drinking pop. I'm having all of these different types of drinks and food that I haven't had in years. But every time I come home, I have them. That's my number three. Okay. Okay, great. And my number four, okay, I don't know if this is for you guys or if it's just my family, but growing up, we had assigned seats at the table. And every single time we come home, we all sit in those seats. I can come home just by myself. My siblings won't be there, but I'll sit in my at my seat at the That's table. That's great. Yeah. And if if all of us are home, all my siblings, and one of us sits in the other's chair, it's like a full-blown-out fight and it's crazy because like who who sits in assigned seats anymore in life but when you're when you're at your parents house that's so by us the when ta- it, we have a new table the table's not the same 
So it's ready. The whole thing. The whole thing is just yeah. Ow. Also, also the also the dining room when I was in like when I was in twelfth grade, like they redid the dining room. There you go on a room repurpose, but yeah. So like yeah. the whole house is just different. Carly, if you're like the only one home, will you sit in someone else's chair and like take a selfie in it and send it to them? And be like, ha, I'm sitting in your chair. No, but one time I did try and like take like I I sat in their seat because whenever I'm home alone, which happens to be a lot, especially like when I. My growing up, like in high school, I was home alone and my siblings were off in college and I would sit in their seat because why would I sit at the other side of the table? Because I'm the youngest. Why would I sit at the other side of the table? I'll sit next to my parents. But and then I would automatically sit there and they would scream at me like fights broke out because like punching involved, pinching because I sat in their seat. Yeah. So let's get used to. Yeah. Can I just say one you know? more thing? So there was when I was a kid, I had this like life size poster of Carl Malone on the wall. And like one time, like when my parents were painting like the, the the house, I was probably like in fifth or sixth grade, and they like tried to throw it out. I bugged cheese. I was so angry about it, so they put it back up. And like one day, I I came home and it was gone, and it still makes me sad that it's gone. That's really sad. I hate when childhood things just disappear. I appreciate the condolences. <laughs> Grow up, all right? You. Grow up. <laughs> Grow up, Shirley. You can handle it. No, I'm just kidding. I have a lot of things that like disappeared after I left the house, and I'm still looking for them. But jokes on me because they're probably gone. No. Also, but also, but it's a funny thing because certain things are still there. So like my brother like collects like weird stuff. Like he was like into like pocket knives and like laser pens. Oh, so weird. Oh, wow. And like no, like for one time for his for his birthday present, he wanted a label maker. At what age? Because like that was pretty cool for a little bit. I don't know, but like he like just printed like random stuff like all over. Like the like room, woke up and, and like, like the label, label maker's still head. there. He had weird hobbies, my brother. Very weird hobbies. <laughs> that's a good board of directors. Yeah, that was fun. Board of directors of weird hobbies. Yeah, for another time. That's another time. Okay, that was great. Okay, um, we have a very special interview today with um, Lori Commissar. Um, she is the president or chairman of the board of the uh, American Friends of the Israeli. Uh, Sports Center for the Disabled. You gotta say that faster. I'm not saying it faster. It's like a tongue twister a little bit. And um, she's a really special person who uh, wears her heart on her sleeve, and uh, it was it was it was really nice. So uh, here we go. So we now welcome to the show a very special individual, the president of the American Friends of the Israel uh, Sports Center for the Disabled from the North Shore, Lori Komasar. Good afternoon. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, I am well. Thank you for asking. So um, we typically, the way we start is we, you know, we ask our interviewee just to talk a little bit about themselves and their background, and then we kind of just build from there. So uh, um, who is Lori Commissar? So at the moment, in this, in this chapter of my life, I'm Lori Commissar, the philanthropist. Um, I literally tell people that I wake up every day figuring out what thing I can do, something small, something large, whatever it is to help my people. And um, it, it happened from my grandfather many, many years ago. My grandpa died when I was 17, but he was an immigrant and never really learned the language well, but he built a nice size business over the years from starting with a card on his back. And he used to say to us, and me particularly, he would say, Mamala, it, it don't matter what you have. It matters what you do. So remember, always do good. And basically what he was saying is that you could have all the money in the world, but if you don't do something good with it, you're nobody. And 
all of my my siblings and my cousins lived that life. I mean, it was it was amazing. We always thought about what we could do that was good in the world versus what we could do that didn't help anybody. And 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 just these little sayings that my grandpa had, who basically couldn't even speak English, and um, it stays with you. But of course, I went through my years that I worked on Wall Street and I made money and. Um, I ended up being a single mom for a number of years and was able to do that. I think, well, I think my children would say I did it well. And then met um, a man who said, gee, you shouldn't work anymore. I'm like, well, what will I do? And he said, well, what would you like to do? I said, give your money away. (laughs) It was pretty simple. And so together we have tried over the last almost two decades to just do good in the world. And the center the Israel Sports Center for the Disabled is my passion. And children, literally children with disabilities has a huge spot in my heart. It has nothing to do with experience. I don't know how it got there. But um, you'll find in life, anybody who becomes intimately involved, knows them well, whatever, or even meets a, a person with quote-unquote disabilities for, for a couple hours will realize that children and adults with disabilities have gifts, that they're not disabled really. They have abilities and strong abilities in other areas that unless you take the time to meet them, you'll never know. And when it comes to the center, um, I fell in love from the first time I was introduced to it. I met a girl named Caroline, and she was 10 years old, and she was in Chicago. And these two wonderful men used to to have a brunch. They still have it every year. And you went for free, and my daughter's college roommate um, parents were involved. My daughter called me up from college, and she said, you know, Ellen's parents are involved with this thing called the Israel Sports Center for the Disabled, and I think you really like it. So you're going to go to brunch with them, the parents that I had never met. <laughs> so we went and we fell in love and we fell in a little girl named Caroline. She was 10 at the time and she'd never been out of a wheelchair. And she sat tall in her chair and she was bright eyed and full of personality and absolutely spectacular looking. And when she spoke, she won the room and she told about how she had the luckiest life in the world because she had her friends at school where she mainstreamed. She had her kid, her friends at the center where she did her sports with. And then she had her friends all over the world that she competed against. And now Caroline in her 20s is rated third or fourth in the world in Paralympic table tennis. So it's, uh, it's inspiring and wonderful and and. She has a can-do attitude, as of all the children in the center, they're amazing human beings. So what's like the story of the center? When did it start? What was the inspiration? Like even before you got involved, what's like the background there? So the center started 60 years ago. This is the 60th anniversary. And originally it started um, when at the time of polio. And it was started by a woman, I don't remember her name, and it was very, very tiny, and they cared for polio victims. And then an un- unbelievable man named Moshe Raskis, who was a veteran of two wars and was wounded in one of the wars, he came and took it over. And he started to rehabilitate everybody through sport. And then they, I think the next um, disease after that that came in, there was a tremendous amount of cerebral palsy. And over the years, the center has grown and we have like 18 sports and most unbelievable amount of of different kinds of disabilities. Uh, we, we had one young man that was a the victim of a bomb. He was a bomb victim. Terrorists came into his home. 
when he was nine years old. He's in his 20s now also and shot his mom and his three brothers dead in front of him. And he and his sister survived by playing dead. But he lost his leg and he spent a year, more than a year in hospital, as did his sister. And when he came out, his father brought him to the center and said, he won't talk, he won't do anything. And he became a championship swimmer and then at 17 decided that he wanted something new and he became a wheelchair basketball star. He spent two years in Hamburg, Germany, playing professional wheelchair basketball, which is huge in Europe. We don't appreciate this in the United States, but his team was backed by Mercedes and they gave him a car and an apartment and they they competed all over Europe against the Italian team. This team, it, unbelievable stuff. But what's really cool about the center, first of all, everybody starts in the pool and it was that way from the very beginning. It's on a very small parcel of land, like four and a half acres in Ramakan, Israel, of which one side backs up to the Hayakon River, which is a beautiful setting. And um, it doesn't matter uh, what level your disability is, how, how your attitude is. Everybody comes with an even playing field. Everyone helps each other. It's a family-centered place. So if they have one child that, that needs the center and the whole family comes, the whole family joins in on different sports or uses the weight room. And um, it, it's it, – we. What we do is not only for the children, it's, it, it extends to the family. Like right now in COVID, when the center closed, most of our young people are um, at, come from the at-risk population for whatever reason that happens when, with disabilities. And so we became a social service agency for a while, um, doing everything we could on Zoom and, and making sure they had food and, and medicine and, and whatever they needed. Um, it, it's... And the center is such a community that not, we had to lay off 90% of our staff temporarily. They all volunteered back and they were all on, on Zoom or on the computer every day with the kids, rehabilitating them through, you know, helping the families go through the motions and what they should do for them and lifting their spirits. It's, um, it's what I call a place God, God kissed and never left. It's, uh, you, you can't even imagine till you're there and you can see it and, it, the, the person who runs the center, Boas, he's um, he he came to the center. He did preschool. I think he came at ten. We have a preschool and a kindergarten, which are accredited. I think he came at ten, and he's also never been out of a wheelchair. He became a medical doctor, but decided to come back and run the center instead because he had had you know had the most amazing experience. And he was he's a medalist, a Paralympic medalist in tennis. So. We got. I think he's were in China, and I forget what else. But um, it's an amazing place, and not everybody becomes a championship athlete. They become productive members of society. We build a nation in Israel because a lot of them end up with a desk job in the IDF because it's you know in in Israel you're, you're not really important unless you go to the IDF, and these kids all want to go to the IDF too. And and they and they they so many are extraordinarily bright. Where, where the gift comes in. Maybe someone can't walk, but their brain's extraordinary. And even we, we have a boy that has MD and he has excelled where he started his own nonprofit. He has a little trouble speaking. Um, he's had many, many operations. He's in his 20s now, but he his presence is incredible. You know, when he sits in his chair and he talks, you just are riveted by him. He he. He has gotten a sense of self and and just he, a can-do attitude. You know, they can't be beaten. 
absolutely can't be beaten. They, they just have this sense that they can do anything, and it's wonderful. You know, with te- technology the way it is nowadays, um, organizations are always kind of, you know, sort of pushing limits and boundaries. It's pretty impressive that you're so involved with an organization that's really around the world. Um, what's that like? Are there challenges around being involved with, with an organization that's so far away? Um, and how do you sort of navigate those? So I don't think there's any challenges because this is a people-to-people organization. I tend to like philanthropy where you can hug and kiss who you help. <laughs> so I, I love an excuse to go to Israel. I, I, every, I've been probably to Israel 50 times, and each time I learn something new, and it's such a tiny country. It's the only country that you can go from the south to the north, and you can you start out in the desert, and you end up in the mountains, and it's you know the, the degree in temperatures is huge. And it's a short, you know, car ride for us. For Israelis, it's so far. But for us, you know, half a day is no big deal. But um, and and as far as going around the world, I've I we we don't we don't have the the pleasure of raising money all over the world because we we don't have an infrastructure. We're a small organization, and it it takes a lot to get there. Also, we we don't have an organization that makes people say, "Wow!" I mean, you really have to have a heart to be a part of us. And and you have to understand that it's not a, a contagious disease when people have congenital diseases or, or lose limbs or whatnot. Right. Um, but, but we have a, a, a donor base that is so incredible. Everybody goes to the center. They want to see the center. So I've only been for the center to, to Canada, all over the United States and London once, but it's easy. I don't know how to say it. You know, you can pick up the phone just to ask a question. Right. You know, WhatsApp is amazing. Right. And and if you really want to face to face, you schedule a Zoom or you do FaceTime or wh- whatever it is, you know, wherever anybody is. It's I find it very easy. And the, the other board members are also not necessarily, you know, restricted to any one country. No, I but I have an amazing board. I have to say. So we decided that we would build a young board. You could, you know, you could go after three things on a board. You go after the ones that have big money and they usually are not workers and they're usually older because they made their money and they're willing to give it away. And then you have those people that want to put it on their resume and you don't want those people. And then you have people that want to work. And, and in this, in, in the climate that we're in, the younger generation really wants to know what they get out of being on a board. And it's not tangible or financial. They, they want something back. And so we're fortunate to have young people that they're getting back is that they just love the kids. They just want to help the kids. It's, it's that person to person that, that feel good thing. And, and they, you know, in, in the world that we live in, you can get very depressed and you can get down and get political and fight, and whatever. But but being in an environment where who you're helping teaches you that there's nothing that you can't try in life that you can't exceed in in one way or another is 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 a gift. So our kids, the center, our young people, the center, they, they give gifts to our board members. Our board members are like wonderful and probably, you know, we we probably have one of the youngest boards around, which makes me feel so happy. So when I eventually have to step down, I know that there's, that they will, um, they'll take this and they'll run with it. And we do have some board. We do have people that, 
that give us a lot of money, and I'm very grateful to them because we couldn't exist without them. But, you know, we we, uh, we struggle sometimes to raise the kind of money that, that we would like to because we would like to build another center in Israel, which is very, very expensive. So some, some of these children come from Beersheba to Ramat Gan, which is a suburb of Tel Aviv. That's, that's a schlep. Right. And because and and really the center is one one of three really in the world uh, that do what that we do. And it's it's amazing because it's it's a seven day a week program. What is it about sports that you think, you know, helps create this magic that that, you know, helps these individuals realize their full potential? And it is magic. It's sports and recreation because we also have dancers and it does the same thing. So. These, these are children that cannot mainstream sports, but they all love sports. I mean, everybody loves sports. Sports is a great equalizer. Um, so you could always be the best in a sport or you can just play sports with your friends. But, it's a, but that the team element of sports is character building. And we, we provide the team element of sport. That's why everybody starts in the pool together. And... These are children that are not asked to be on someone's team in gym at school because they're in a wheelchair or they're on crutches or whatever, or in a walker or whatever it is that they're on. But they come to the center and everybody wants to be with them. And there, it's, it's it, the feeling that you can work really hard at something and you can actually excel at it within the confines of what you're doing is enormous. So it builds character, builds sense of self. They have some, they own something that's theirs. I mean, they choose their sport. And if they don't like their sport after a while, they choose another sport and they meet other children. And if they get good, they, they, we send them on competitions to Europe. They get really good, which is, we only had a few, you know, they go to the Paralympics, but it's not that to be a champion of that sort to make the Paralympics is not the, the, the focus to, to be a champion is to live each day just a little bit better. And that's like Caroline, they'll tell you they live a great life. They're, they're so happy. And, and then they know that other things are open to them to go to the IDF is still open to them to go to college. You have no, I mean, so many of them go to college. Most of them go to college and, and choose careers and become productive members of society. Instead of like in the United States, we don't really treat it that way. We have a lot to learn in the United States um, about people that have challenges unlike our own. As, as someone who started off in business, and as you said, I think you mentioned Wall Street, and now is on the philanthropic, the philanthropic side of things, what do you feel you've been able to sort of bring from your business experience uh, to offer the, uh, the non-for-profit world? So I was one of the first women in a hedge fund in Wall Street. And without getting into the graphic details, it was interesting. So I had to fight every day that I walked in. And not because it, it wasn't a literal fight. I mean, the guys were great. They were really nice to me. Um, they, I, was, I was on a floor with 100 men. I was the only woman, including the sales assistants who were upstairs. I mean, I was it. And I will tell you that I know as a fact that if you're – if you fight for yourself, if you if you have a strong character, men know that the name that the word no means no. I know this is a fact because I worked with a hundred guys and they weren't all angels, but they understood no. And I think that that experience that 
that I could be who I wanted to be and I could excel in a world that wasn't maybe accepting of me at that time. Because when I got hired, the person that hired me said, okay, so we need one of your kind in the office. So you're going to work with that group. There were different groups on the floor of, of trading groups. Um, and I ended up with a very, very strong group and a very, very famous person. But he, he taught and he and the world would say that he's an SOB. And I will tell you, he's a really great guy. And he taught me everything I knew. And he taught me to be proud of everything I did and that I, I could do anything, even though the other guys thought that the woman couldn't. Yeah, it, it, it like you feel you. I learned my inner strength from doing that. And then I learned then I met these these children from the the center and they had the same attitude. Everybody thinks that just because you're in a wheelchair, you can't do sports. No, we have a dance team. An able-bodied person dances with a person in a wheelchair, and it's beautiful. I mean, he swings her over his, he- his head in her wheelchair. It's unbelievable. There's The word no doesn't exist there. And I learned that early on also on Wall Street. But no, it didn't exist. I was okay. I, you know, I could say no, and they, uh, but they couldn't tell me I couldn't do something. Okay, so once we, uh, once we have you on the line, so obviously you're very passionate about the uh, the ISCD. Are there any other um, philanthropic interests of yours that um, maybe you could tell us about? Oh, that's so funny. So it's funny because if you knew me well, everybody says I have something plastered in my forehead that I don't say no. I, I like I said earlier, I like everything that I can. I can hug and kiss who I'm helping. So years ago, I was a volunteer. I, while I was working, I would on Wednesday mornings, I would volunteer at what was then the Rehabilitationist through Chicago. That's now the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. And I would always volunteer in the pediatrics with the kids. And one thing led to another, and, and I became extraordinarily active. I served on the um, campaign to build a new hospital. I now am the head of... Um, events for the hospital, but it's the, the same kind of a thing. First of all, I, I think that the, the hospital that was built is amazing. The rehab, the rehab is amazing. Just the genius and the, in every floor, the researchers and the therapists and the doctors and the nurses, everybody works together to give the very best delivery of rehabilitation to the, to the um, patient as possible. And the head of the hospital she says, well, actually, let me back up. There was a man named um, Her- Betts, Dr. Betts, and he started, I guess he started with Illinois Rehab, became RAC, became Shirley Ryan. And he used to say that everyone in their life will have a disability. Some you may, may be able to see and some you won't be able to see, but we will all suffer from some sort of a disability. And I thought about it, and you know, and it, it stays in the back of your head. I will further on with this one in a few minutes. But And then I, I got involved with RIC Shirley Ryan, and I realized that the head of the hospital, Joanne, who's just amazing, she said that it's not about disability. It's about rehabilitation. So people went, to the, went there not to get a little bit better. They were seeking a cure. And as far as she was concerned, that we would give them everything we could as close to that cure that we could get them and work in research to get cures for everything. And I have seen quadriplegics learn to walk. They couldn't touch the ground while they were walking, but they learned to walk and, and learn to drive a car and, and, and could do sports, could do a hand cycle and, and whatnot. It's the same kind of a thing. 
It's giving them the next chapter of their life bigger and better within the limitations that, that were dealt out to them, unfortunately. And it's, it's also a place with a can-do attitude. You just don't say, no, I can't do it. It's, yes, I can. Yes, I can. And, and the Dr. Betts story moves on to my, my next philanthropy, which is Birthright Israel. I'm passionate about it. I'm on the national board. And I was privileged once, they asked me a few years back, to chair the Inclusion and Accessibility um, committee and to really get us a, a real definitive program because if you think about it, birthright Israel is a gift to every Jewish youth, um, but it should it, but it should be absolutely every Jewish youth as long as they can get on a plane they can have their birthright. So we figured out how to how to do the inclusion accessibility. I was I was lucky enough to chair you know this committee that didn't have board members but had experts from all the different organizations that knew so much. And they, they taught me, we, we did it. Um, I worked with one of the top people of birthright on this and we and our family decided that we would only at that point donate to inclusion and accessibility buses because that's what we believed in. So we went to Israel a couple of years ago and we met five minutes before we were meeting with a birthright group. They said, Oh, by the way, it's an inclusion and accessibility bus. Do you want to speak? I said, oh, okay. You know, in front of a hundred people, I'm not really good. At, I, I, I need preparation. I get nervous, but I thought, okay, I'll do that. And then when, when I was on my way up there, I looked and some of the children were in the front row of the audience. Then I got nervous because I needed to speak about them with them in front of me. And I, I thought to myself, no, no, this is what you believe in. You, you know, this, you believe in speaking their language. And so I went up there and I told the Dr. Beth story. And I said, I bet there's somebody here. Like, excuse me. <clears throat> I bet there's somebody here who's in so much pain that they have a greater disability to the, these bright young children that are sitting in front of us. And I said, if you give them five minutes of your time, you'll know that they have each and every one of them, an ability that's astounding and that you don't get to know unless you meet them. So maybe they look different, they speak different, they act different, but they're the same of us. And some of us excel, some of them excel. And I went on and on and I was just speaking to them, you know, and I was, at the end, of course, I got all teary eyed because I'm a big crier. And um, when I had been on my way up, one of the girls said to me, Lori, and I turned around and she said, don't make me go up. I said, no, you don't have to go up. I'm going up. You don't have to go speak. And then um, when I came down, she stood up and she said, can I give you a hug? And I said, yes, because you have to always, you, you have to be invited and they have to hug you first. This is the way it works with people because you don't know what what their issues are and you don't want to to invade their privacy. And she gave me a big hug and she said, I'm going up there. So she went up with her. They They all travel with um, people that helped them. And she went up and she and another young man and, and an adult went up there with them and she stood in front of the group and she said, I want to thank Lori. I've never been comfortable ever speaking to anyone. She said, I didn't have any friends till I went on this trip. And now I have a whole busload of friends and they understand how special I am. And Lori understands how special I am. I was crying so hard. I couldn't even control myself because it's like, it's what you live for, you know, to, to just know that you've 
you've, you've made an impact in your life, even if you didn't do it deliberately and you, and, and you did it accidentally, it, it was, it was amazing. And obviously we raised a ton of money that day, but that wasn't the, it really wasn't the, the goal. And the goal was for people to understand that I was with that these were not disabled children. These were children with amazing abilities. And that's what I think if, if there's any takeaway, I, I want the world to know that it's, it's not the disability part. It's the ability part that people need to focus on. So that's my, my other biggie. And of course I just, you know, I, we, we give to the FIDF and we, we do only two programs there. We do the legacy program, which is a program where a child has lost a parent in uniform. And when they're, it's in their bar bombers for a year, we bring them to the United States they start out in Chicago. I throw a big party for all the kids and all the, the families that are hosting them and we get to know them. And then we spend four days with them and take them around and just show them a great time. And then they go on to Camp Shy and they spend a couple of weeks at Camp Shy and then have a trip through to Detroit and to Niagara Falls and to New York City and go home. And it's it's life altering because if you lose a parent in uniform, you don't necessarily have to put the idea up. And I will say of the 10 years I've been doing this, of course, we didn't get to do it this summer, which is really disappointing. Um, and the 50 kids that have passed through personally my house, that have stayed at my house, every one of them has gone to the IDF or will go to the IDF. Has said that, you know, obviously some of them aren't old enough yet. And and I'm still close with all of them. And the, the other program that we, which is the reason it's great to go to Israel, I see all these kids. The other program we do is called the Impact Program. And that's where you have the privilege that after a, a Israeli has been in the IDF, if they can't afford college, they apply for what's called the Impact Scholarship. And for $4,000 a year for four years, you get to send them to school and you get to have them as a part of your family and you get to give them an education. And again, you you get to build the, the state of Israel. It's, it's amazing. And they have to do a certain um, number of hours of philanthropy through the year. They have to give back while they're doing it. And it's, it's amazing. So it's always the, you love to hug and kiss who you can help. And every year we go to Israel and we have a great big party for all our impact students and they come with their wives, their girlfriends, their mothers, their children. It is so cool. Laurie, um, you talk about, you know, I, I can sense your passion for the, you know, the Jewish people in the state of Israel. Aside from anti-Semitism, what do you think is the greatest uh, challenge facing the Jewish people today? It's it's totally multifaceted. So everything's going away from brick and mortar. And the young people don't want to have the structured religion. So the challenge is is really to bring the young people what they want. And and without brick and mortar, it's hard to gather, right? It's it's the the challenge of giving them a safe place to be Jewish, to understand what it means to be Jewish, and to let them be who they are. Listen, be part of being Jewish is all this human rights. You know, people might say no, this and that, but but we're brought we're brought up from the very young age of that we're responsible for everyone, and and that's what we're taught. And so it's to to help young people retain their Jewishness and do the right thing in the world for whatever that means to them. It's, it's a huge challenge now and and not to be critical of each other for choices that we make, because in the end, we're one great big family. And we we tend to um, be a bifurcated world, even in Judaism, which is not good for us because I, I wouldn't I wouldn't decide 
by someone's background or someone's beliefs whether I would help them or not. And I, and I think that's important that everybody needs to know. It's, it's, we're too judgmental. We, we just need to be a people again. And um, that's hard. It's a challenge. As you talk about the younger generation, uh, we oftentimes will speak about, you know, this, this, um, this value of giving and being philanthropic, you know, in your mind, what are the, you know, the, the, the points of, of teaching the younger generation of being, you know, generous and philanthropic? Of teaching them? I think we, they, we need to embrace them. I don't, I don't believe that it's something that they can learn without experiencing. And I think it's a mistake for, I, I think that they're turned away from the money part of it, not because they don't want to give their money. I don't believe that they, they care so much about giving up their money as much as that it becomes, maybe it, it's perceived as a pay to play. You know, those that give the most are most involved or things are elitist or whatever you want to put on it. Um, I think embracing younger people and, and showing them that there's many ways to give back. It's not only writing a check and that, and, and to have them feel good about it. And, and it's difficult. It's, it's so multi-level. It's very, very difficult, but also in a world where they're taught that Jews are bad, you have to teach them that, that they're not bad. They, they don't have to pretend that they're not Jewish. It's, it's, it's not what they think. I think that's why I like birthright so much because the educational piece of birthright is, is not one dimensional. It's multidimensional. And, and when the children go on birthright and it's for free and of course, you know, it's, it's not really free. It's a gift. And, but they perceive it as they go on it because it's free. And for so many, you can't even believe how life altering it is for them afterwards, but nobody tries to push an opinion on them. They're showed exactly what the situation is in Israel, but from a contextual point of view, because young people get all of their news within 30 seconds every day. And I read something that said they get most of their news from YouTube. Great. They get most of the news from videos. That's wonderful. So they're getting a one-sided kind of, um, opinion of depending on what they they tune on to and, and don't really live and die for the news the way the the older generation does you know not that i would watch the five o'clock news anymore but but i read my news online and reading is is not it's not really an acceptable form for that generation it's right. more video and piecemeal and so i think that we have to figure out on a larger scale what what birthright does on a smaller scale is how to give more context and less content because they're barraged, barraged with content, but they don't have the contextual piece in order to assimilate it and, and understand it and go forward. And that's our challenge. Lori, it was incredibly inspiring. Thank you so much for taking the Thanks time. Thanks for having me. And uh, it, really was, uh, it really was special. Thank you again. Yeah. Thank you. That was really special. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I think it's interesting that they find that the Israeli um, uh, Sports Center for the Disabled has like such success in their model. And there's only like three of those in the world. You'd think like it would be, you know, replicated more across the globe. Yeah. I mean, she talked about how she feels like the culture, the, like United States, the American culture 
doesn't lead into that as much. I'm really, um, I guess I was really taken aback, although she doesn't think that that was so significant. Uh, the fact that it's all being done basically remotely, although she flies to Israel a lot, it's pretty cool that she can really be so involved in an organization and so invested in it from halfway around the world. I thought that, I, it's just th- those types of things, if we're talking about like pushing away stigmas and pushing boundaries and the envelope, all those types of things. The idea that you can have someone so involved in an organization and be halfway around the world, I think is very cool. And I think it should make organizations think twice about how they formulate those relationships that they have, or they form those relationships with, with people and where, and how do you identify stakeholders and board members, et cetera. I think that that to me was a pretty cool takeaway, even though it really didn't matter to her much. Also, staying in theme with the, with the previous episode discussing, you know, the impact of like younger board members and how that's like a focus of them. Um, I think that's uh, something that nonprofit organizations need to really focus on and, uh, you know, getting young stakeholders in that really care and that are willing to put in time and get real sweat equity on top of their, you know, financial investment. It was, she had, there was a tone there when she was speaking about that that was very similar to what we heard from Amy Schiffman about the younger generation you know, wanting to be invested and knowing their impact and asking questions in a way that the older generation did not, which I think is good. I think that's a good thing. You know, those are for some organizations, it will mean going through a bit of a transformation and it may mean, you know, some growing pains of asking some tougher questions and budgets, not just being approved for approval. But I think that's a good thing for the field and the industry. Right. Especially because, you know, you have to get fresh blood. So, yeah. Keep it fresh. Keep, keep it fresh. fresh. Keep it. Keep it fresh. I just want to say, um, maybe this is like an office frustration. Like I try to be a nice guy. I go out of my way to buy both milk and non-dairy creamer, and then literally three days later, we have a tornado that knocks out the power, and now it's spoiled. In for-profit offices, do you think like it's it's like in the budget, like milk? Like I feel like a lot of the stuff in the kitchen that we have over there is just like things like you know we just put, kind of picked up along the way or. I've been to offices in this like town. Personal donations. I've been to offices in this town that their snack game is so strong that uh, it's uh, we look like uh, peasants. I'm, I'm curious what the non for profit office like kitchen standard situation is? is. Yeah, I feel like in non for profits, it's like if you have food from different functions you did. Like just like lying around. Like we had a case of Fiji water. Like we had like four cases of Fiji water. Yeah, so why water do we models. have it? I always wondered. Like we They're have gone. Fiji water. So are They're we gone. like wh- like who bought? That's from an event that we ran definitely like sixteen months ago. Because like if we were to buy water bottles, I don't think we'd be buying Fiji water bottles. Yeah. No, I actually I I I took the leftovers from the event. I brought them into the office and figured, listen, if we ever have like fancy people here in the office. We could whip out our Fiji water Ooh, bottles. Fiji water. We need some Pellegrino. Yeah. So then, then the following happened, which was we had no other water bottles in the office. So I took a Fiji water bottle for myself. I kind of like snuck it, and I'm drinking. I'm like, this tastes really bad. Yeah. And so you don't like it? No. And then I realized that like apparently they expire. So there's a whole case of Fiji water bottle. Just I, I was still drinking them. Where's all this soda from? Uh, soda was left over from I think a, a, a barbecue we did. So you're saying that eventually it's going to run out, and then we're going to have to not have beverages, or get expired, or or become expired, or we need just we have to up our slush. I mean, just, the word is expire, not become expired, or they will expire. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so we have a, we have a. I'm legit interested, by the way. Like, what do other non for profit office kitchens look like? 
Yeah. Like, what is their snacks? Because you're right. I've gone into some for-profit offices that, like, go all out on the snack, lunch, kitchen, drink situation. They got these... They have freaking, like, Starbucks coffee, like, like huge Starbucks brew machines. Let me just say... Um, I'm cool with our Keurig. I'm just before curious. I Before I came back to this job, I was at another job that okay, right, people know. know about. Yeah, no, no, let's move on. I don't want to hear about it. I just want to say one I thing. I want to hear about it. I don't... All right, go. So we built this awesome new building, and the thing that excited me most was the fact that the fridge in the kitchen had an ice machine. <laughs> so you had ice? Yeah. Iced coffee every day, man. Lame. Okay, we have a very, very, very important ask the expert today with a very special guest. He might be the most famous person we've ever had on the podcast, just saying. He may have, listen, he may have more social media following followers than Zach Banner, believe it or not. It's possible. I have to look. Yeah, we have to check that out. We need to fact check that one. We're going to fact check that one. But of course, this person is none other than America's orthodontist, Dr. Dovi Prero. Let's get his take on some stuff. Hello, hello. Dr. Dovey, how are you? I'm doing great. Ari, long time no speak. Yeah, what's up, bro? <laughs> so thank God everything is good. Yeah. The family is healthy. And that's really all that matters these days. That is all that matters. Thanks so much for taking the call and giving us some time on, uh, on the podcast here. Very of excited course. to have you as a guest for our Ask the Expert, of which you are expert of many things. I just want to say I introduced you as uh, America's orthodontist. But you know, it's orthodontist to the stars. But I feel I feel like you can do that. You can be like you could like somehow like take like the Shmuley Boteach model and become America's dentist. Okay. I, I hear it. I sign me up. I'm absolutely down. You know, I'm a big fan of the podcast, by the way. Oh. Oh wow. I didn't wow. know that. Yeah. Wow. Oh, look at I that. um when I ride my bike around the neighborhood, I listen to the podcast and then sometimes when I like if I need something to help me, I'm kind of un, unsettled and I need something to put me to sleep. So I'll start the first few minutes and then I'll wake up in the morning and it'll the podcast will be over. So it's really awesome. Is that a compliment <laughs> or not? I can't tell. No, no, don't don't answer that question. Well, I am remembering. Do you remember that time we were really you and I were in a car somewhere, and like for fun we I Facetimed. Dovey, and he like classic. He's like got a patient sitting there. Yeah, in he chair. was like doing P Diddy's teeth. Is that HIPAA? It was it was Silento. <laughs> is that but is that HIPAA? It was Silento. Is this is this HIPAA? Is it's, this a HIPAA I violation? I think it's DIPA. I, I think you'd have to refer to my uh, no because in a social my media OSHA stuff. compliance. Manual. That was not social media. That no, was but awesome. he was also on the social media stuff, so everyone knows that Silento. 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 That's now not. watch me whip. Yeah, we have, now watch you know, me we have uh, waivers and all that that they that they sign, so it's all good. All right, let's not get ahead of ourselves. One second, okay? one second. Let's Dr. Joby, Dr. Joby, time out. When you make them sign the paperwork in the office for the first time, do you, like, slip those waivers in there, or they, they actually know they're signing? <laughs> no, they, they, it's kind of like, you know, par for the course, but we throw a little extra in there. Like, you know, if your next album hits double platinum, we get 10%. It's kind of like all yeah. of us down is kind of do that, you know? I'm sure all, yeah, absolutely. That's like a standard in the industry, I'm sure. Exactly. Okay, at the moment, how many Instagram followers do you have right now? Um, I think it's like 34.7 thousand, but uh, I didn't, I haven't checked in a long time, like since, you know, 
like 20 minutes ago. I haven't checked. So okay. Okay. Next okay. next question. How many how many followers do all of your clients combined have? No, that's ridiculous. There's no way he knows. Oh, uh, I don't know. Probably like uh, either tens of millions or hundreds of millions at this point because we have some pretty big people out there. Who is who is the who? Which of your patients has the biggest social media following that you can say? Um, we had the. Uh, the catch me outside girl in the office a while oh, back. That's right. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's very popular. Is she um, was she a good client? Patient? Wonderful. Wonderful person. Oh. <laughs> you like mess up her teeth. She's like, catch me outside. How about that? Okay. <laughs> Maybe she should recommend you to her uh, her psychologist. Okay. Dr. Dovey meets Dr. Phil. Our segment Exactly. Our segment is Ask the Expert, of which you are many things. So I want to jump into a question. It's more discussion. It's a, it's a discussion. Yeah, I want to jump into one topic. So there's something that you spend a lot of time on. Obviously, everyone knows that. Yeah. Anyone who knows you knows that you spend a lot of time on this. Um, and now it matters so much more because of of where you're, you know, and that's your hair. And like, what's it uh. like to spend so much time on your hair and then have your your face plastered on a billboard in Beverly Hills and like everyone seeing your hair like blown up like, i think what's that I, like? I think the question is well, ari needs hair tips because my hair is above average okay one second let's just start with talking about the billboard and then i'll i'll ask you my my hair product questions. in regards to the billboard you know um i like to put my best foot forward and i think everybody should lean into their strengths so for me i like to put out a professional appearance because i think as part of being a professional is you have to look professional now the stick with the hair it's kind of like I've always, since I've been, you know, one could say a bar mitzvah board, I've, I've always combed my hair similar, a similar way. The part is always on the left side and it goes from left to right, similar to my son. We do that that way. And um, so it's kind of just, it's just included in kind of like my appearance now. Um, but I do, you know, on the way to work, uh, I could be happy to divulge my, you know, one would call it trade secrets so on the way to work i spritz with water first i usually do it in the car actually so i spritz with water do you ever spritz with like the dentist water <clears throat> spritzer <laughs> uh that's a great idea i'm gonna i'm gonna do a video about that for sure for sure for sure make sure that's you give credit idea. where credit's due that's all that's all we ask that's, <laughs> so i spritz with water and then i do a little bit of uh it's like dr uh, jovi dr jovi spritz with water and then below it with the the sandblaster? The, the thing. The, You're getting the, with, confused. He's an orthodontist, not a dentist. He still uses these tools. <laughs> You're getting, I don't know. Yeah, we he, have the same yeah. stuff. Oh, we you do? Yeah, okay. Dr. Ovi, off the record, both I mean I had a whole fight. He was, like, defending you to the death about, like, whether, like, you even, like, like are, like, kind of a dentist. And I'm like, no, you have to go to dentist school first before you become an orthodontist. And he yes, did not absolutely. know that. Absolutely. And that is, we use Tresemme. It's, like, the level four, so it's a pretty good hole, pretty stark. Um, and then I'll actually, I'll actually go back with a round of water and the, you know, I'm pretty particular about the spritz bottle too. So I've got the Sally, I've been known to frequent Sally beauty supply to see the latest line with the spritz bottles that they have. Um, and then we go ahead and finalize it with the, with the spritz. And of course the, the, the brush, it's kind of like a comb brush mix, um, wide bristles. So it's not so thin. Um, and that goes in between each spritz. So water comb and then tresemme level four uh comb and then a little bit of uh, water and then a little bit of uh, a tiny bit of comb the comb like basically decreases as you go through the process do you shave in the car 
absolutely. Usually I do. Classic, classic every Los like Angeles move, days. right? I feel like everybody, I feel like every fifth car in Los Angeles is commuting with a shaver in their hand. Although my commute, I live 1.7 miles from my house. Well, first to, of all, when you're uh, seeing when office. you're seeing traffic, you might as well. You're not moving yeah. anyway. Traffic. I don't have much smog. traffic. So I'm to actually get to work, and then I have to finish up the shave. But you know, you got to do it for the gram. Yeah, do it for the gram for sure. Um, manual toothbrush or electric toothbrush? Yes, that's the answer. So um, I will. Wow, use it's like a process. A, yeah, absolutely. So just, I like just the. Just I like the <laughs> I like the electric toothbrush because I feel it gets really, really clean. But I feel sometimes that it can, when it's held closer to the gum, to the gum line, it actually can uh, be a little bit, a little bit abrasive to the gum line. So I find that I usually do twice a week with the electric, and then uh, five times a week with the um, with the manual. Hmm. Oh. But I do have a specific um, toothbrush that I absolutely love the manual the the manual toothbrush. All right, we'll um, let you we'll let you plug it. You what can plug is it? it, yeah. Oh gosh. No, nah, actually, no, we don't care. I'm gonna come back to it. You have to remember it. Um, we'll come back to it. I was gonna say it's kind of like, you know, I feel like it's like the difference between a you know a, a haircut with like the electric thing and like the and like the and like the scissors. You know, like sometimes you just need the finesse of the of the exactly. manual. Exactly. Exactly. We have. And a, the truth is, it's, yeah. yeah. Sorry, no go. It's mostly in the uh, in the technique. It's really not so much the 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 toothpaste or the mouthwash that you're using some people when they, they brush, it's really about the brush strokes and you want to go away from the gum line. It's called the bass method. B A S S method. Bass like uh, fishing. Can, yeah. Yeah. Oh, like, like Ed bass master. <laughs> Just look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, bass, bass pro shop is named after the, the bass method of, of actually brushing your teeth and not actually fishing. Fascinating. We had a little debate on the show uh, last episode. Uh, we were talking about like the the you know the difference of or the purpose of shampoo and conditioner. What mm-hmm. are your th- what are your thoughts on that? Um, I find that when I use conditioner, my hair is silky smooth, but it actually for me it decreases the volume a little bit. So I and, and the texture is a little bit different than I'm used to. So I can imagine I would get used to it, but the truth is I just stick with. Um, Pantene Pro V, or sometimes Herbal Essence has a really delicious smell. You know, we're cl- pretty close to the patient, so I, I like to make sure I smell nice. Doctor Dovi, um, have you ever thought about putting in some gray highlights for like a mature look? You know what? I thought about it, and uh, the grays are coming actually. But my theory is is that I'll look. You know, hopefully people will stop asking me how how old I am, or they don't usually ask you how old you are. They they say usually like. Oh, how how long have you been in in this office? Meaning, essentially, like how long have you been practicing? Um, and they usually find us for a reason, right? If it's because the reviews that they read online or their dentist sent them over, and so there's good reason that they're they're at the office. But kind of when they put it all together, they're like, "How long have you been? You know, how long has your lease been for this location?" Really, what they're asking is, "How long have you been practicing? And do you know what you're doing?" And usually, like I'll call them out on it, and I'll say, "Yeah, you know." If you're asking me, if, do I know what I'm doing? The answer is yes. <laughs> and then they usually seals the deal. They're like, oh, okay, fine. Okay, Dr. Dovey, as someone who is constantly, I mean, you really managed to grow, quadruple your practice by using social media as a, an incredible platform. You have a lot of social media fans out there who are not just patients yeah. and they're across the world. Do you find ever yourself in a situation where you're like, okay, I, I, I'm like 
you, you're like itching to find a new idea for content. You've been quiet for like a day or two, maybe. And or just, an hour. Or an hour. Like, what do you do in that moment when you're like, okay, I need to post something and I, I'm not, nothing's coming to me quickly. Do you force something? Do you take a break? What do you usually do then? Usually I just take a break. Um, I think in the beginning when I first started, I forced myself to feed what we call the content machine. So like you'd have to feed it. And now I just take a break and the people will see like there's sometimes like I'll post daily for a couple of weeks and then I'll take some time off. Um, so I try not to let it control me. I feel like it's important and it's uh, helped my practice significantly, significantly grow. And we can, we do measure our, our return on investment for those things and for the time spent and for the influencers that we collaborate with. However, um, I try not to force it. So if I'm just not feeling it or if uh, nothing's come to my mind, uh, but I also have like a, a little folder in my phone of uh, of things that I uh, store if it's like cool cases or nice ideas that I want to share. And then I can save those and then use those when maybe I don't have something right off the top of the head. Um, Dr. Dovey, last question. So um, <clears throat> this is a nonprofit podcast and you are, uh, you know, a uh, influential lay leader in your in your city. Are there any uh, nonprofits you want to quickly plug while you have the while you have the mic? Hmm. Um, we're pretty involved in the organization called Bone Olam. They're a wonderful organization that helps uh, couples that struggle with infertility uh, to help them realize the dream of having a child of their own and becoming a family. Uh, very passionate about that. And so um, I, I, I tried to raise some money for them and put time and effort into it. Um, I really think for me, that's, that's what my heart, what's, what speaks to my heart, um, helping couples uh, have children um, and, and basically what it does is they, they pay for the treatment and also help coordinate care uh, and help them navigate that maze. That's fantastic. Dovi, all worthy causes and uh, really admir- admiring the fact that you, uh, with everything that you do and commit to in your professional life, you still find time to help out those 501c3s nearby. And you find time to come on this uh, below average podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, they, they told me about it, and I, and I blocked out my schedule. So we we canceled everything else, and I said I got to be on the 990. All right. All right, Dovey, keep doing you and uh, changing the world one smile at a time. What's your thing? Is that? <laughs> That's right. Making your smile more beautiful than yeah, it already, already is. is. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't even close. No, wait. How does it goes? <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, Dr. Do- my name is Dovey Pereira. They call me Dr. Dr. Dovey. Do good morning, my Instagram Do- family. My name is- good morning, my Instagram family. For those who follow me, I'm a Prero Orthodontics on uh, Instagram. Good morning, my Instagram family. My name is Dovey. They call me Dr. Prero. I'm an orthodontist in Beverly Hills, and we'll make your smile more beautiful than it already is. Come join us as we Instagram our way through the 990 podcast. Yeah, I love yes. it. Yes. All right, Dr. Dovey, thank you so much. Take care. A pleasure. Thanks All for including best. me, guys. Keep you up the great it. work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yo, he's a solid brother-in-law, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I was going to say um, – but no, like, no. Are, are there any perks? Like, do you think like if you like needed ortho work, you would it would be worth it to fly out to LA? We've uh, we've priced it out. Yeah. Yeah. Is it worth it? Um, it's a close call. I mean, like right now with airfare the way it is, it's it's probably probably you should you should it. knock yeah. out all five. You should, you should get it all. Your right son now. probably doesn't even have all his teeth yet. You should go get him braces right now. Well, we have a different issue with with uh, AB and his dental work. I meant the younger one. Oh yeah. <laughs> you should do all of yeah. them now. Maybe he's uh, had like two baby root canals. Oh god, you might as well just. You know, okay. I mean, the kid brushes his teeth with candy. I don't know. What I'm saying I don't know why I expect anything less. Yeah, whatever. 
Well, that's our show for today, everyone. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we will see you next week. Really? Will we? Homies looking out for me. Yeah. They the ones who family. Yeah. I've been on that melody. It's obvious this energy. I'm a doom.